Well, it's so good to be God's people together, amen? <clears throat> good to see you all. I want to invite you to grab a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, which is there in the second half of your Bible, Matthew chapter 9. If you could turn or swipe there, and as you're turning there, I'm not going to begin this evening with a story. I'm not going to begin this evening with some illustration, and I'm not going to begin this evening by asking you by show of hands for this or that, like you know I like to do. I want to make a statement, and it's a statement that at first blush, you're going to say, nah, that's not right, that's not true. But I think that if you really dug deep, you would find that it might actually be true. Here's my statement. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospels, Jesus never asks people to worship him. Instead, Jesus invites people to follow him. Now, you Bible student people, you Sunday school people, are starting to get the gears turning, and you say, now wait a minute. Well, there's that woman that is like bowed down, and you know, then in the Great Commission, they, they come and they worship him. Right, yes. People worship him. And in fact, what have we just spent the last, I don't know, 30 minutes doing, and we'll continue to do? Worshiping him. What I'm saying to you is that when Jesus was the son of God embodied walking this earth and inaugurating God's kingdom mission. He invited people to follow his lead. He welcomed worship, but he didn't ask them to worship. So this evening, we're going to talk about this invitation to follow Jesus. It's how we begin every new year in the neighborhood church because this is part of our five core practices. You'll see them here in the lovely icons that Aaron Stone created a few years back. And this evening, we have to start where everything starts, and that is with following Jesus. What do we mean by following Jesus? Well, in the neighborhood church, we say that we commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus in our everyday life. You have heard this. You could probably recite this. If I was to ask you what is a disciple, what is a follower of Jesus, you would probably answer this way. I didn't make it up. I wish I did. But it's a paraphrase from the late, great Dallas Willard. Lord willing, you're going to hear another statement from him later on in this message. But it's a way of getting at Jesus' invitation Follow me. When Jesus called his disciples, when Jesus invited them into his kingdom mission, he was looking for apprentices. That's another word for disciples. And an apprentice is someone who was with Jesus to learn the trade from Jesus and then to go and implement and live like Jesus in their everyday life. I want to pause there. We might talk about this later, but I need to stop right here and make this important distinction. You have one life to live. 
So often we talk about our spiritual life and our work life, our church life. Here's the thing. When you really whittle it down, you just have a life. And there's not one square inch in your life that Jesus does not want to transform and show you how you might live in the fullness of life and love that he gives. So we are all committed to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus in our everyday life, his disciples, his apprentices, to take on his mission, to follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Now, obviously, as I said a moment ago, people worship Jesus. Obviously, we're committed to worshiping Jesus. So our first core conviction, which are those seven statements that we found from the Anabaptist Network there in the UK, you'll find it on our website, underneath our core practices, it all kind of fuels and inspires how we follow Jesus together. And the very first one, it says we're all about Jesus, and it reads like this. Jesus is our example, teacher, friend, redeemer, and Lord. He is the source of our life, the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, our understanding of church, and our engagement with society. We are committed to follow Jesus and what? Worshiping him. When people worship Jesus, it was usually because they had been with him to learn something from him, and the natural response is to give him their time, their life, their resources, their attention, which is worship. Worship is the proper response to the encounter of Jesus, but understand that Jesus never asked anybody to worship him. He only asked that people would follow him. And when they accepted his invitation, it changed them and they found themselves swept up into life with God and his kingdom. Then they worship. So we begin back with our core practices and that is to follow Jesus. Tonight I wanna give you five outcomes of following Jesus. Guess what? You'll hear some of these because we talk about following Jesus all the time at our church. In fact, this is not the first time I've preached a message on this core practice to follow Jesus. In fact, this is not the first time that I've preached the story I'm about to bring to you. I hope all of this is a reminder because everything is about following Jesus. So I want to give you five outcomes by way of reminder to go back to the basics and to look at the invitation to follow of a very unlikely disciple named Matthew. So that's where I want you to join me now in Matthew chapter nine in this brief story that should be familiar to many of you. I'm gonna begin in verse nine, and tonight I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It'll be on the screen. So as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. So when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, not to Jesus, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, 
not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Now, Matthew is most likely a toll collector, but he is still very unpopular, okay? Matthew was sitting at a tax booth, and he was doing the same thing as many tax collectors, and as people would come by, he would try to exact whatever toll on their goods or their services, or like you do at the President George Bush Turnpike. I got a hair hanging off of me that's driving me crazy. (laughs) You got to pay the toll. So Matthew's sitting there, and just like any other tax collector, he's seen as a traitor because he's collecting these things that are either funneling Herod the Great's projects or going up the ranks to Rome. He's seen as a traitor or he's seen as a cheat. Y'all have heard about tax collectors. Why would they have thought he was a cheat? Yep. How do they make their money? They take a little off the top. Okay? Traitor, cheater. Cool? Now, How do you think people treat Mr. Matthew as he's sitting there at his tax booth, as people move from one province to the next, they gotta go through him. Do you think that they're just so fired up to give him their little money? I'll tell you, I had to be on the phone with AT&T for 30 minutes and it was all I could do to just bite my tongue and not wanna rip my wireless router out of the wall and drive down to the nearest person with an AT&T thing and just beat them over the head. It made me crazy. Imagine, in all of your comings and goings, every single person that walks past, begrudgingly giving over money that you know is gonna go into his pocket and to their pocket, you saw him as a traitor and a cheater. But here comes Jesus, who says, follow me. We have no indication that they had met each other before, We have no indication that Matthew sent his resume to Jesus and said, what do you think? Can I join this thing? All we know is that Jesus approaches with his disciples and he says, follow me. Now, Matthew had probably heard the stories because Jesus was famous. He was a healer. He was a teacher. He was becoming well-known in this area in which Matthew lived and worked. But here's the trick. Jesus inviting him to follow him was a sign of approval and acceptance saying, you, yes you, in the tax booth, you can be with me to learn from me how to go and live like me. So Matthew does what any reasonable person would have done when this well-respected healer and teacher comes to town. He closes that booth down knowing that it probably won't be there when he got back and he set on a new direction and toward a new life. The first thing I want you to see in the first outcome of following Jesus is that to follow Jesus is to be transformed. Matthew had heard the stories and he jumped to go because this cheater now had a chance to become a disciple. And this traitor now has an opportunity to join a new movement that is actually affecting real life and change and pushing back sin and darkness and evil. This past summer, I did what many of you did, and I went and saw Toy Story 4. How many of you saw Toy Story 4? It's not on Disney Plus yet, which is why a lot of people didn't raise their hands. 
I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I need to introduce you to a new character you may have seen in the shelves at Walmart. How many of you know Forky? Yes, Forky. Yes, the greatest animation studio in the world created a character called Forky. And he's not even a fork. He's a spork. It's crazy. I think they had this huge practical joke on us that says, we're going to make you love a spork. And they did, dadgummit. Here's why. Bonnie, who's the little one that now is the keeper of all the famous toys, Woody and Buzz Lightyear. Are you with me? It's little Bonnie now. She goes to kindergarten orientation and she is not having it. She's not feeling good about it. And so Woody, which is the Tom Hanks character, the cowboy one, sneaks into her backpack because he wants to make sure that she's acclimated and okay and everything's all right. Well, she goes to her table and she gets real sad because some kids come and they take her crayons and nobody's sitting by her and she's really upset. So this toy, Woody, sneaks out of the backpack and tries to wrangle up some craft supplies and he drops them secretly and quietly on the table. And when Bonnie looks up, she sees a spork. And she sees a popsicle stick, and she sees some modeling clay. She sees some crayons. She sees some mismatched googly eyes. Y'all try saying that five times fast. And she creates Forky. Let me tell you something. She creates Forky because as she holds him and loves him and plays with him, puts him in the backpack, Forky comes to life because Pixar, like I said, is crazy. Now, Forky is now introduced to Woody and the rest of the toys, and they're trying to say, yeah, Bonnie made you, she loves you, you really helped her get through a hard day at school, but here's what Forky does. Every chance he gets, you remember, he makes a beeline for the trash. From the trash he came and from trash he wants to return. So there's this whole montage happening where Randy Newman, who is still singing the Toy Story songs on the fourth one, he sings this, I can't let you throw yourself away. And he runs to a trash and then Woody drags him out and puts him back. Then he runs to the park trash and then he grabs him and runs him out. Then he brings to this waste bag, he grabs him and brings him out. And this whole cycle keeps repeating itself. Well, finally the family goes on a vacation, they're in an RV, and Forky is still trying to make a break for it. And when everybody's asleep, he goes up to the window and Forky, Forky, with pipe cleaner arms, extends his arms and says, I am not a toy, I am am trash, I am litter, and I think he's like, I'm free, and he jumps out of the window, a spork that's alive, I'm still talking about this, ready? Here's the point, Woody follows after him, finds him, and they begin to walk together for five and a half miles to meet the rest of the family, and here's what happens, All the way until the sunrise, Woody tells him just how much he means to his creator. And finally, finally, Forky says, you mean that I make Bonnie feel warm and accepted and like everything's okay. Just like that trash 
made me feel. You mean I make Bonnie feel that way? And he goes, yes. And all of a sudden, that hideous little spork wants to go run back to be with Bonnie. And I'm sitting there in the theater looking at this little thing that thought it was trash become fully awake and alive again when he realizes just how much he delights his creator. Matthew's not a cheater. Matthew's not a traitor. He finds that he's beloved He's accepted that there is a new life, there is a new direction, and he learns this by walking with Jesus. You learn to be fully human, fully awake, fully alive to your purpose in this world the more you walk with Jesus. You learn to be truly human, not to settle for trash, but to walk fully and emphatically into the new life and the new way when you walk with Jesus. The first thing you must know is to follow Jesus is to be transformed. Here's how I know that in our story with Matthew. If you look in Matthew chapter eight, and then in the rest of chapter nine, you see Matthew, who was sitting at the tax booth, who began to follow Jesus, who someday, years later, writes down of his interactions with Jesus. The book is called Matthew. He arranges his story like this. Matthew chapter eight, Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Jesus heals many at Peter's house and the mother-in-law. Then people say, I wanna come and follow you. He says, it's a big deal and it's gonna transform you. Then they go across the lake. Jesus stills and quiets a storm. They get to the other side of the lake. Jesus heals demoniacs. Then Matthew chapter nine, Jesus heals a paralytic, forgives his sins. Then Matthew chapter nine, nine, Jesus meets Matthew and says, follow me. And here's what happens. Matthew, writing his story, says he was raised and followed him. My Bible says he got up. But then you keep going in Matthew chapter nine and then you see that um, after he's interacting with the Pharisees, then he heals a little girl and he heals a woman with bleeding. He heals two blind men. He heals someone who's mute. And then he says, I need more followers to go and bring this kingdom message. Why would Matthew put his story of being raised up to follow Jesus in and amongst story after story after story of miracles? Because for Matthew, this was a miracle. And for that person in your life that you never thought in a million years would come to Jesus, it is so much a miracle to them too. And for you sitting right here in 2020 to be here and breathing and alive and through everything that God has brought you through, it is a miracle and he's still inviting you to take a step with him. It is a miracle story, friends. And Matthew wants us to see that he was raised up in new life. So that's worth celebrating, right? The second outcome I want you to know that to follow Jesus is to follow him, to walk with him in your everyday life. Something wonderful happens between verses nine and 10. 
Okay, look close at your Bible. Look close at your Bible. Let me explain it to you. Something wonderful happens. After Matthew follows Jesus, guess what? You ready for it? Jesus follows Matthew. Do you see it? After Matthew follows Jesus, ready? Jesus follows Matthew. Am I crazy or do you you see it? Ready? And as he sat at dinner in Matthew's house with Matthew's friends, and Jesus was there. Jesus follows us into our circles, into our places. Not in a creepy, you better watch out, you better not pout, you better not cry. Jesus is going to come. No, Jesus follows you into your circles, into your places, so that you might begin to understand that there is not a single square inch on this earth or in that relationship, in that place, where you work, where you are having and raising your family, where you are serving, where you're going, and into the hospital in which Jesus doesn't want to come and transform with his light in life. Dallas Willard says to be a disciple of Jesus is not only to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus in our everyday life. He says to be a disciple of Jesus, if we can just put a finer point on it, this is what Dallas Willard says. Philosopher wrote so many books, dense, wild things, says this, and it is so powerful and it's so simple. You ready? To be a disciple of Jesus is to choose to do what Jesus would do if he were in your shoes. What would it look like to celebrate with Matthew? He leaves the tax booth, come to my house, let's party. I've got a new life and a new direction. Well, if it's a party, who's gonna come with? Well, my friends. Whoops, who are his friends? Tax collectors, sinners, and his disciples. I'll get there in a minute. What I want you to understand is this. Where would Jesus be following you This week, to choose to love your spouse the way Jesus would love your spouse if he were in in your shoes. To choose to parent your children the way Jesus would parent your children if he were in your shoes. And where you fail, like I might have today, you ask for forgiveness and you allow Jesus to heal and forgive and to move and to extend love in that square inch of your life. To choose to spend your money the way Jesus would spend your money if he were in your shoes. Choose to serve the kinds of people that Jesus would want to serve if he were in your shoes. To choose to treat your coworker, the tax collector, or the AT&T customer service representative the way Jesus would want to serve and treat them. To follow Jesus is to walk with him in your everyday life for there is no other life that you have to live. But you got to understand that this is a dangerous Situation because that means that he comes into those unsavory parts of your life, but you find that Jesus is actually comfortable there, but I think he changes things. So the third outcome is this. To follow Jesus is to share the table with the lost, the lonely, and the left out, but then to still find Jesus there. 
So y'all read that and saw that, tax collectors and sinners. When you read the Gospels, that's like salt and pepper. That's like ketchup and mustard. That's like hamburgers and hot dogs. The Jewish folk loved to lump in sinners, which was a word for any wide range of just immoral people. They could be ritually unclean people. They could be Gentile people. But to put a fine point on it, they want to single out one group, and they say the tax collectors and sinners. Like the IRS. The IRS and AT&T customer service. I was sweet to that lady. You got to believe me. But I was tempted, Lord Jesus. This lady tried to sell me something before she transferred me to a technician. I'm waiting. I have no internet. I can't produce this sermon for you lovely people. And she goes, before I transfer you, you're a valued customer. Because please just transfer me to a person that can do something about this. Yes, sir, I understand. But, but first, oh, Lord Jesus, give me strength. Three times, but I'm over it. Lord, forgive me. I'm supposed to preach and not talk about AT&T. This is what happens when you're gone for like two weeks and you're not preaching. But this is my everyday life. And Jesus is inviting us to the table of all these kinds of folks. And what's fascinating is, and his disciples. I love this shared melting pot that the kingdom begins to bring into the New Testament. The demographics in which Jesus is rezoning the neighborhood where the people that we thought were out, that we thought were unclean, all of a sudden are welcome to the table and we've got to rub elbows with them. This is why we try to change some of the demographics in and around this place by mixing this economy around a table. Because we see Jesus doing this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what's fascinating is we took something so simple, so common, like sharing a meal. Because that was a way of saying, I accept you, I'm here with you. Jesus knew what he was doing, even though it was getting him in trouble. So we say, let's follow his lead and see who shows up when we set a table and allow Jesus to move in the room. So we started the neighborhood table. And it was not lost on me that this week I was going back through some of my notes and several years ago at a leaders meeting, we were talking about these kinds of things, how Jesus follows us and how Jesus invites us out to the margins, to the lonely, the left out and the lost. And Toby, I had this written down in some of my notes. Toby said, you know what? She's making a face like, what is he about to say? (laughs) Toby said, you know what? At the end of the day, Most ministry is common, and it's the everyday kinds of things. You don't need a degree or a gift to have dinner with people and share a table with them. And then three years later, the last neighborhood table that we had and hosted at the Rock Community Center just up the road had 140 people, different faith communities, All of these people gathering together. But here's what I love. That was the most we had last year in our brief little launch in those first few months of the fall. But here's what I loved. Whether we had 70 or 80 or 140, we had about a third of our people and two-thirds of the people that we had built relationships slowly but surely trying, 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 failing, trying, trying, succeeding. It's a third and his disciples and two-thirds, whoever else. 
And the trick is that if Jesus were pressed, I don't know that he would have called them tax collectors and sinners. It was the religious folks that took issue. The Pharisees take issue because certainly this dinner party makes Jesus unclean. And I love how Richard Beck says this in a book called Unclean, Meditations on Purity, Hospitality, and Mortality. He says, sacrifice, the purity impulse, right? He's talking about religion and ritual. That marks off a zone of holiness, admitting the clean and expelling the unclean. Mercy, by contrast, crosses those purity boundaries. Mercy blurs the distinction, bringing clean and unclean into contact. Thus, the tension. So the Pharisees, who speak for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, pull the disciples aside, and they're saying the question they already know the answer to, but they do it to condemn and to judge and to mark off who's clean and unclean. They say, why does your teacher go and eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, I'll handle this one. He overhears what they say, and listen to what he says in verse 12 again. He says to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do, effectively. I love this response. Because when we realized we were sick the last couple weeks, we went to the doctor. We thought we were all over it. We thought we were all okay. And then Emma throws up literally for the second time in her life. That got our attention. We figured we needed a doctor. She's almost eight. She had not thrown up since she was two. So we're like, we're going to the doctor. And we were able to get right into the doctor. Turns out it was a reaction from strep throat. Random, but it happened. And while we're waiting on that test to come back, Emma goes, hmm, Does our doctor get sick all the time? And Amy said, well, yeah, kind of, except their immune systems are so strong because they're looking in your sick little throats all the time. But Emma was beginning to turn the wheels to realize this tension of the clean and unclean coming into contact. She understands what the Pharisees don't. The Pharisees were a religious pressure group trying to get people to obey the law, to be ritually clean, to follow every jot and tittle. And I think that their hearts started in the right place, but they began to substitute the heart of the matter for the external ritual factor. And they thought they could change the world. Hear me. They thought they could change the world from the quarantined place over here in the bleachers. But here's the problem. For a doctor to do his work, he must be in contact with the sick. And if we're following Jesus, and he's making contact with the sick and the sinners and the lost and the left out and the lonely, and we're trying to follow him, guess what? We better be in contact with them too. And the degree that we aren't is the degree that the church in America looks like Jesus or they look like the Pharisees. And make no mistake, the tax collectors and sinners know the difference. The fourth outcome of following Jesus is to follow Jesus is to let his priorities become your priorities. The Pharisees were out of whack because their priority is quarantined holiness. But Jesus prioritizes God's mission to save sinners. So Jesus 
continues his response after saying the sick are the ones that know they need a doctor. He goes on to say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you're taking notes, you can write down Hosea 6.6. Hosea is trying to bring back Israel well before Jesus' day to a place where their insides, their heart matches their outsides, their rituals and their actions. They had become sorely out of sync. So Hosea says, hey, go and understand that God wants your heart, not just sacrifices. God wants you to recognize that he is Lord, not just your burnt offerings. Jesus quotes this line to effectively say to them, you have got your priorities out of whack. Here, let me say it this way, ready? The Pharisees' sickness was thinking that they were well. Maybe the starting point of holiness is recognizing you're not well. The Gospels are littered with people who have a keen awareness that things are not okay and they look to someone who can make a difference. They look for a kingdom that can make room for them. They look for a God who forgives and loves and accepts them. They look for the spirit of God that can inhabit them and enable them. They recognize they're not well and they go to the one who can do something about it. The Pharisees do not need a doctor because they can't even tell they're running a fever of self-righteousness and religion and ritual and substituting a heartbeat of relationship. I had another illustration that I want to share with you. You may not remember this man's name, but you remember the circumstances of what made him famous. The man's name is Kent Brantley. He's a doctor. He's young. He's about my age. But he became one of Time's People of the Year in 2014. He's a Christian. He's a doctor who took those two things in his everyday life and followed Jesus to become a medical missionary in West Africa. And he served and worked in Monrovia and Liberia amidst an Ebola outbreak. He became famous because he was the first American diagnosed with Ebola. He was one of the few people that survived the disease and was able to come back and be treated at Emory University in Atlanta. But here's why I found his story so fascinating. Because as the outbreak was happening, he would treat person after person in the hospital with fevers and the signs that were deteriorating. But more and more, the families and the loved ones would come and they would get the patients, sometimes breaking into the hospital in order to take them back to the village. Because they had a perception, like so many people do in this country as well, that hospitals are where you go to get sick and die. And it's just a fever. So more and more, these people would take the patients out of the sterilized hospital and back into the village. They would go back into the village and then infect all of their friends and family and loved ones. That's how outbreaks of Ebola happen in West Africa. But Kent Brantley and the people that he worked with left the hospitals and went into the villages to regain their trust and walk with them back to the hospitals. 
And it was that contact that got him sick. But it was this impetus to follow Jesus that got him sick as well. To tell him to leave the quarantined area and to go bring others with him. Which is our fifth and final outcome. To follow Jesus is to follow him with others. Matthew continues on his stories of miracle after miracle after miracle. And then at the end of chapter 9, he records Jesus saying, you know, there is so much need and so many people. The harvest is what? Plentiful. But the workers are what? Few. Then Matthew, at the beginning of chapter 10, lists the 12 disciples Jesus' inner circle, the ones who've been with him, who've learned from him, how to live like him, and guess whose name is one of those 12? Matthew. Because to follow Jesus is to be transformed, and to follow Jesus is to walk with him in your everyday life, and to follow Jesus is to share the table with all the lost and lonely and the left out, and to find Jesus there in their midst. To follow Jesus is to let his priorities become your priorities, your time, your attention, your money. And then finally, he realizes that to follow Jesus is to not do it alone. Jesus didn't do it alone. And he sends them out to go and live like Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow Jesus together with others. And to tie off this whole bit for the one that says, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners, is to understand, listen, that Jesus is reversing the standard of religion. And he's rescuing sinners in the context of relationship with God himself, not religion, not quarantine, not ritual. Your invitation is to go directly to the source and find yourself rescued out of relationship with the living God made possible through Jesus and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And you don't do it alone because not even Jesus does that. I wanna close now because my dear friend Ramon is here. I knew he was gonna be here. So I wanted to leave you with these two invitations. Ramon and I have been on a journey with Jesus together. And we actually went on a literal journey, a spiritual formation training cohort several years back that was started and <clears throat> maybe not started, but really um, uh, impacted by the late and wonderful Chuck Miller, who meant so much to Ramon and I. And every time he would talk, he would remind us that every single morning when you wake up, you find yourself two invitations, like two envelopes with your name right there on it. Whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or five minutes, every morning, new, two new invitations arrive. You remember what they are, but because you've just come from Russia, I'll put it on the screen instead. Jesus offers us two invitations every day. Come to me, and then come follow me. The cycle repeats itself with Matthew, and Peter, and James, and John, and Amy, and Robert, and Aaron, and Jason, and Kara, and Mark, and could I keep going? And whether you followed him for 50 years or five minutes, the invitation is to follow him. 
So may we follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Amen. All right, tonight's benediction is by Aubrey Smith. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we graft our lives into his life, the abundant vine, keeping his commandments and bearing fruit through his love. May we follow Jesus closely, listening to him with ears willing to hear, watching him with eyes willing to see, and may our feet be ready to go wherever he leads. May we take up the cross and follow the Lamb of God, even to death, rejoicing in the great honor of suffering for him and holding fast to him as we grieve and hope. May we be formed into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, imitating his humility, mercy, and grace. May we go out into this world as ambassadors of our risen King Jesus, proclaiming his reign and calling all creation to worship him. Go in peace.